but very, very dangerous. If you spotty sense, you know, I was like, oh, something's off. And I'm just like, man, I'm waiting to hear something, you know. What's going on, guys? Welcome to the 10th episode of the War Cry Podcast. I'm your host, Yehola Tiger. Um, just a guy. I guess that's my new line. Just a guy, but... No, but, uh, you know, I had been kind of thinking about some things, and, and when you know, guys, you know how I do. When I start thinking, I start really kind of diving in and, and doing research, and I've had some people ask me about this topic that we're going to talk about today, and I'm getting right into it. Um, this can be, uh, can be could be pretty pretty sensitive, um, uh, and this is, you know, can be graphic as well. Um, very sad and tragic. Um, I'm going to be talking about the uh, Girl Scout murders in in uh, here in Oklahoma um, at low in in the this, this the town the city whatever uh, of Locust Grove, and everybody kind of knows you know what happened. Um, I'm going to give a, just a brief kind of overlay. Basically, how we're going to do this is is it's going to be theories, and then I'm going to review the latest documentary that came out on Hulu, uh, Keeper of the Ashes. And then also, too, I'm going to kind of go into some things that I thought was kind of interesting. Um, and it's not going to be in that order, but it's just that, that's what kind of we're going to be talking about. And, you know, but how this whole thing started. Um, June 13th, 1977. Um, camp Scott, which is the Girl Scouts camp, um, like I said, near Locust Grove here in Oklahoma. Um, how this whole thing got started is around uh, anywhere, anywhere from 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. Uh, someone or could have been, could have, you know, we'll get into this more, but it could have been more than one person. But some person um, came into the Kiowa unit, which was the most secluded unit or uh, campground in the camp, um, and killed and, and uh, molested uh, the three girls uh, who were sleeping in that tent. Um, the location of the body was about 150 yards is where they ended up finding them. Um, two, I think it was two in a sleeping bag and one was kind of out, out on the ground. Um, the victims, um, I'm going to give their names now. Um, Lori Farmer, uh, Michelle uh, Gousset, and Doris Denise Milner. Um, before we get too far into it, you know, Thoughts and prayers with uh, those families who, you know, still are you know dealing with the basically the aftermath. This is almost fifty years ago, and you know we're still talking about it. What happened and and you know what's what went on and so my my thoughts and my prayers are, are with those families because um, you know this the reason why I even kind of th- think about doing this this episode is I have a little girl of my own. I'm about to have another one too. And I, th- I think about that. You know, we had a discussion in my, with, amongst my family here in the last week about daycare, you know, and, you know, doing summer camps. Because I, at my uh, employer, I, I do summer camps. Um, it's not a, a, a sleepaway summer camp, but it's still a summer camp. And we have kids that come in and, and you know, they, they're in our care. And, you know, I, th- I, I think about that. I, I've since thought about that since I started doing camps. 
and you know having a daughter you know i think about stuff like this and what kind of what transpired you know in this event and the events that led you know the events that followed um but to keep it to keep it going so around 6 a.m uh miss carla will uh, will height um she was a counselor she discovered the three bodies like i said 150 yards away um by 7 30 uh there was about you know i'd probably say a, a crew of local law enforcement um and they began the the investigation on the scene and then about 10 o'clock the the camp was uh evacuated um all the ca- campers were sent home um and one thing too that i guess maybe doesn't i guess it, it was covered a little bit in keeper of the ashes but is the fact that these kids and the or these girls were from the tulsa area um and so the so they went back to tulsa to their tulsa headquarters tulsa regional office and um by 10 o'clock and june 13th was the last time that the girl scouts camp the girl scout camp was was open ever um it was it was open for nearly camp scott was nearly open for 50 years um and it never reopened so as we kind of get into the investigation part of this um and like i said i'm going just a brief rundown of what i sometimes i try to get this off the top of the head sometimes i got to look it up and 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 make sure i get it right so um but the next day you know they had basically the crime scene was um blood there was there was blood in the tent on the ground on the wood planks and basically they took the whole tent to a crime lab to have it uh kind of uh looked at um but it looked like too that the way that the blood was on the on the floor on the, of that tent looked like they had tried to wipe it up and there was towels and there was parts of mattresses that had blood all over it and um basically against the wishes um of, of the investigators which we'll go into that too because that's a, that's an interesting part was basically the investigators and the press um kind of having some beef and you know Things were getting published that weren't supposed to be published. Um, but one thing too about when they when they went to look at the actual crime scene in the tent, there was a, a different foot, footprint than the one that they had assumed was the perpetrator. So then the following day, the fifteenth, uh, June fifteenth, nineteen seventy-seven, um, Sid Weiss, he was the Mays County DA. Um, he publicly out, uh, outed basically the press. Um, about the shoe print and a man is arrested about seven miles away from camp scott Um, he was living in his car and he is questioned but then he's released so that was the first suspect um and i believe let's see i believe that that was a guy named mike um i know i've watched a few documentaries and that's basically they just gave the first name mike like that was it like nobody like who's this guy is he homeless like you know they didn't know who he was so they just in the documentary they gave the name mike well then once once they interviewed him released him and they kind of you know got him out of the way they turned their investigation over to the rancher um jack schroff and he uh was under big time scrutiny there because you know when they brought the dogs out the dogs had led to the pond on his property and they had drugged the pond and you know basically searched that pond over and over and they never found anything but you know he ended up 
getting put out in the news that basically the headline was Slayer and they had his name and his face and you know that the evidence is leading to him and that he is the 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 the, uh, the murderer and all this stuff. Well, then the next day they had to re reverse course and uh, basically say, oh, he passed a lie lie detector test. He's not the murderer. Um, and a lot of this too, and a lot of this, the evidence, you know, and some of the stuff that I was looking up, and a lot of the beef was like between the Tulsa World and uh, the Tulsa Tribune, uh, which was a paperback uh, in the in the early seventies. Um, I don't think it even is op- still running now. I have I didn't look to check, but um, but I mentioned those dogs, and this is the first kind of weird occurrence um, that the investigators couldn't really couldn't really uh, wrap their heads around. Um, so they brought these dogs. They called them the, the 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 press called them the Wonder Dogs, and the Wonder Dogs were supposed to you know they had cracked some case in eight hours or something or sixteen hours in Pennsylvania and broke the case open, and then they found. The guy who you know killed these people up in Pennsylvania. Well, they brought those dogs down here to say, "Oh, we're going to make sure we'll find something in eight hours." Well, you know, legend has it, and you know, this is something that has been circulating for a while. And um, I know that this has been published in the papers, and but there was a medicine man in that area, and he had said that, you know, I'm going to curse these dogs, and. The crazy thing about that is two of those dogs ended up dying. One died of, wouldn't stop. The dog would not stop. And it died of basically heart palpitations. And basically the heart seized up and the dog couldn't, it just died. Then another dog was, the trail was sent into the middle of the road and they got hit by a car. And, you know, that's one thing that was kind of crazy, you know, about that whole situation. And so they, so the Wonder Dogs ended up, you know, kind of not really being wonder dogs. And this is, you know, around the, the time when they first, the name of uh, Gene uh, Leroy Hart was mentioned as a possible suspect. Well, he had, well, Hart had escaped from Mays County like a couple years prior, like I think in 73. So dude has been on the run for like four years and never been able to catch him. Um, and they found um, near the body, they found, basically it was on top of the body, they found um, an old flashlight that had duct tape wrapped around it and it had um, basically the, the Tulsa World inside of it, like a strip of the Tulsa World. And it had like a black bag around it and it had a hole punch, you know, so you could be kind of, you could still see, but you couldn't, you, you wouldn't be able to be seen, uh, you know, outside, or, you know, it wouldn't be like far off people be seeing flashlights and stuff. Well, like I said, those wonder dogs ended up not being so wonder, uh, wonderful. And, uh, you know, the two of them ended up dying. But they ended up finding, with those dogs, they ended up finding eyeglasses. And in those glasses, you know, had been, you know, there's multiple sets. But basically throughout the, you know, before um, the camp, or the, uh, the kids got there, the girls got there, um, like for the previous uh, week for orientation, that the... Uh, uh, the counselors had noticed their eyeglasses were going missing and they couldn't find them and they were like oh someone stole them you know or you know there was all types of kind of weird stuff that was going on but so they ended up finding a lot of these glasses you know up all around the the campsite um 
And so, one thing too that uh, I think, that, like I said, this goes into kind of the beef with the investigations, uh, the investigative team, the uh, geez, if I can say it, investigative team and the press, is there was conflicting things that went back and forth. So, you know, one, um, so the the sheriff, his name was Sheriff Weaver from Ace County. He said he found the weapon that killed the girls. Well, then a couple days or a day later, the OS, uh, uh, OSBI said, no, we didn't find anything. No, we did not have, we don't have any suspects. You know, we're still looking. Um, another time is, uh, Sheriff Weaver said, we found fingerprints. Oh, yeah, you know, the, you know, FBI, all these different other organizations said, no, we, we never found any, any uh, evidence of this. Well, then, um, the same day, June 16th, the medical examiner found out that the girls were not actually raped. And that conflicted another report earlier that, they, that, the, that the, the girls were. So there was a lot of stuff going back and forth. You know, like the investigative team couldn't get on the same page. There were so many, you know, with this happening to young girls... Um, this is, I think, we believe that one of the first crimes when you, that ever occurred, and so everybody was trying to make sure they were on top of it. Well, it just was a mess. Um, but you know, I mentioned before when it came to like the orientation week for the counselors, Carla uh, Wilhite, she um, was up on the, you know, was had mentioned when during the trial that there were some weird things going on, and you know, things are getting stole. Um, glasses. Uh, they even said, um, I think he, uh, I'm losing, I'm, I lost it. But, anyways, but, you know, they say that, you know, there was a lot of stuff stolen. Well, that ranch that the guy who had, uh, Stroff, uh, the rancher Stroff, he was saying the same thing that he was having stuff stole from him. And, you know, that basically, uh, you know, he, he just, he could never figure out who was doing it, but someone was stealing. Well, then, after they had posted the fact that he was, uh, you know, a suspect, he was getting so many calls. He ended up going to the hospital. He was so stressed out and stroked out that, like, this was happening. And people were calling him, talking crazy. And, um, and that, you know, he was definitely, um, you know, something was going on with him. And, you know, he ain't acting right. And so he ended up going to the hospital. Um, so they kind of dismiss him once they get the lie detector test, um, and like I said, Leroy, uh, uh, Gene Leroy Hart was is still a suspect this time. But then on um, June eighteenth, uh, Sheriff Pete Weaver he announces, like I said, like I said, the the murder weapon was found. Well, the district attorney and agents of the OS, the OSBI tell the press that they had literally have no idea what he's talking about, um, and that was on June eighteenth. I think I mentioned it earlier. So then, June twentieth, in a, like like I said, this is where the press and the investigators. June twentieth, in a complete reversal from the day's previous announcement, Sydney Wise, the DA, publicly says that the several suspects in the case, there there are several suspects in the case, and that there's a mountain of evidence. It is also announced that they do have fingerprints on one of the bodies. One of the two living wonder dogs, uh, Harris, without explanation, runs into heavy traffic. And like I said, that's when. So then the next day, once you know OSBI comes out, um, June, tw- uh, June 21st, 
uh, Oklahoma Governor David Bourne offers the help of the National Guard in that manhunt. Um, another suspect is added, and this is, like I said, that's the guy that I mentioned earlier, Mike, where he's, you know, kind of, you know, basically was found in his car. Um, the 22nd, they also announced that there's two photographs found um, with three women in the picture. Some officials tell the press um, that the photos were found near the bodies. Others tell the press that they were found in a cave about two miles from Camp Scott, which doesn't make sense, you know. Which which is which, you know? It's kind of gets. This is where it kind of gets more like, okay, what's what's going on here? Citywise announces that there's basically a media blackout, and this is on that same day uh, because he, th- he feels like the pre- the press is portraying the investigators as basically dummies. Um, and then on the same day, the the forensic experts they say that there's only one good fingerprint on one of the bodies. Uh, and the other prints are smudged. Um, the good free, the good fingerprint is picture per- perfect according to one of the investigators. So this is where they real the heat starts really kind of picking up on Mr. Hart. Um, June twenty third, they find out that he is uh, is basically um, the one who developed those those pictures of those two women. Or those two pictures with the three women. And he's also spotted near the camp. And basically they launched a full-on search for him. The 24th of of June, 200 members of law enforcement, 400 volunteers surround a four-mile area near Camp Scott. The volunteers were not supposed to have guns, but many of them did, which is kind of wild. Like, you're bringing, like, I guess they're going to shoot him, I guess. But, and also some of them reported that they were high or intoxicated and also in, in possession of weed or marijuana um one thing too this is where kind of you know the uh, american indian movement steps in and they're like we want to make sure this is going right like what is like are we just accusing people of things and so that's when they kind of step in and they uh, are trying to be basically uh the eyes and ears for the native american community and, and letting people know what's going on the 26th of june um Basically, they, they leave the manhunt after two days, um, which is kind of wild too. You know, on you know the next day, the twenty June twenty fifth, um, I like I thought this was kind of interesting that they had heat seeking instruments in the seventies. I was like, dang, they whipping out that secret technology. Got got to find this guy. But then the twenty seventh, um, I'm sorry, the twenty eighth, Sheriff Re- Sheriff Weaver, who, which, I, I'm. I'm I'll detail this, I guess, when it comes to the theories. But Sheriff Weaver puts a $14,000 reward on the case. And basically, you know, puts that bounty on on, on uh, Gene uh, uh, Hart's head, essentially, saying that, you know, you will be paid if you help us find him. So then, June 29th, the FBI moves in 40 agents into the area, uh, to help with the investigation the next day the 30th um, this is uh, Jean Hart's mother um, Ella Buckskin she basically tells the press um, that she is being harassed by the police and Sheriff Weaver is planting evidence um, to implicate her son and she basically goes on to say that Weaver is doing everything in his possible power to grow pressure on Hart but then the FBI comes in and says that they claim that they have proof that Hart 
is a part of this and he that he is still in the area. Uh, and he was in the area during the murders. So then July 1st rolls around and uh, beginning of the month and law enforcement leaves Camp Scott saying that all the evidence was picked up. They have found all the evidence they need. They know who their guy is. They know. Um, well, then come, you know, July 5th, a man matching Hart's description is spotted in the search area. The tracking dogs brought in quickly try and track the person down, but it's almost as soon as they pick up the scent, they suddenly lose it. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's, you know, like I said, there's, there's, as you, you know, as you guys have heard, you know, and, and like I said, as I'm covering it, there's different pressures on different people to find out what happened and what, and, and who is involved. Um, and, you know, they're, they're trying their best to, to get their guy. And that's kind of the, the, kind of the theme with this case. Um, July 6th, Oklahoma State Medical Examiner releases the autopsies of the, of the three victims. The OSBI director, Jeff Laird, calls a press conference and announces that there's no fingerprints on the bodies, um, which then reverses what the what the prior uh, uh, what the prior press release said um, that they put out. And he, the, you know, his exact his quote was is. Uh, what was thought to be fingerprints are not fingerprints, um, and then he declined to elaborate. He concludes the, the press conference with another rather unusual statement. This is an exact quote. It, uh, I would say with certainty that Hart is guilty because I would not say with certainty that any person who has not been tried were guilty. But we do have a great deal of evidence in the case that points to his guilt. <sighs> yeah. I, I when I read that and I, I was kind of you know like I said doing my research, that is the that's the, you know and I could go off on this, but that's the the problem with our system. It is not in the the quote the quote unquote accused or the quote unquote guilty to prove why or to prove they're guilty. That's not the point of the justice system and the system that we have in hand. You have to prove as prosecutors and as the government, as whatever it is, to prove that they are guilty. You're just defending your, your, your stance on why you're not guilty. And that's one thing that, you know, that I, that, like I said, is another theme of this whole thing. And I'm not saying, like I said, I ain't saying anything. I'm just giving you my opinion as, the time, as we break down this timeline. Um, you know, I just, that, I just find it very peculiar because here in Oklahoma, we are very this way. Um, we, you know, and I know it could be all over the country in certain states and in most states, and but it's you're guilty until you're proven innocent, and that's not how that's not how it is. That's not how it's supposed to be. And this is exactly what I what I what I mean, you know, on the on that uh, July sixth press conference. But um, moving forward, um, so basically, they upped the reward money, and the two men. There's two men in Florida that are encouraging the Girl Scouts and Girl Scout troops around the country to donate the, to the reward fund to make basically add to the pot. July 29th, a private security team looking after Camp Scott sees what they think is a person in the woods. After coming back from the investigating, they find Denise Milner's shoes. This is the same Camp Scott that they recent, just here in the last, not even 30 days before, said that there's no evidence left. We have collected all evidence. Which was kind of weird 
that they were found. They found one pair of, or they found the you know right and left shoe in, two, in the two socks, but they were soaking wet and not in a OS, uh, B, an OSBI bag, which was very interesting. But it was found at the camp director's house. Um, August third, the Tulsa World newspaper prints on the front page plea from the Oklahoma Governor David Bourne. Do, uh, David Bourne says, "I will use the authority of the governor's office." And will take any steps necessary to assure his security and a fair trial if he gives himself up. Ew, yikes. Brutal. Um, September 22nd, two of the families of the victims file a $3 million civil suit um, against the Magic Empire Girl Scouts Council. Um, October 1st, the 5000 reward is offered for information leading to the arrest of Gene Hart. The, the reward is made available by a group of uh, prior residents calling themselves Drug Awareness. Man, this is... Uh, like I said, there's a lot of this stuff, too. Um, when I was researching, I just thought it was kind of crazy. It's like, I, I can't imagine being in, being in the 70s. Like, I, I have to look at things from 2023. Um, or, you know, 1990 or 2000. Because um, it's just... It, it's crazy because there's no social media. There's like... Um, you know, you know. Obviously, I mean, I was around before social media, but it's just—it's interesting to see, you know, how people were trying to get things done back then, and, and it's just kind of a—it's a—it's kind of a cool look back of how things were. Um, and I guess sometimes, I guess the word wouldn't really be cool, but it'd just be interesting. October tenth, nineteen seventy-seven, Mays County Sheriff Pete Weaver announces to the press that he is confident that Gene Hart is still in the area, and that he is apprehended. And he told the press, "We will hunt, or we will stay with it and hunt and catch Hart." It's an investigative day and night, which that makes no sense. But basically, he, you know, he's they're they're saying that they're going to catch him. Um, December thirtieth, uh, right before the new year, two state law enforcement agencies report that combined that they have spent in excess of one hundred thirty-eight thousand in the manhunt for Hart. Combined, the OSBI had spent 100000 and the Department of Safety had spent 38000 Not included in the figures, the expenses of the National Guard, and also the cost of the county. Uh, a spokesperson for, the gov- or a spokesperson, spokesperson for Governor Bourne says that the state went all out and the expenses were never an option. FBI releases some composite sketch, sketches of Gene Hart along with aliases um, that he, believed, well, he was believed to have. Um, they did one with glasses and not and like with glasses and not with glasses. That was on January twenty eighth. You know he was he he was uh, everywhere, and he was nowhere at all the same time. Um, one thing I just thought was kind of interesting. You know when you kind of look back at night, like when he escaped from Mays County in seventy three, and this is something that was in um, the documentary uh, Keeper of the Ashes is basically he would escape. The first time he escaped, he escaped by normal means. The second time he escaped, they did, They could never explain how he did it because there was nothing amiss. Well, word had gotten out, because there were some Indians working in the jail, that he could shape shift. He could move his form to be smaller. And some of the, guy, the, the jailers in there said that he could do that. Well, for the four years before these Girl Scout murders... He was on the loose, and he was taunting Sheriff Pete Weaver. Gene Hart was. Gene Hart would be walking down the street, and this is in Keeper of the Ashes, if you guys want to go watch it on Hulu. Um, he basically 
And this, and I think he also did this during the time of the Girl Scouts. But this is what he was doing. He was taunting Pete Weaver. He would literally, he would be walking down the street, middle of the street, or walking down the sidewalk, you know, out in the open for everyone to see him. And people would call the police and say, hey, there he is. He's right here. You have to come get him. They'd pull up, and he'd be gone. He'd sit down on the bench and wait for them to pull up. Next thing you know, he's gone. Somebody saw him on the railroad tracks one time, and there was nowhere he could possibly, there was no trees around, there was nothing. And they pull up, those police officers pull up, and he's gone. Just out of nowhere. It's like they blinked and he was gone. And they could not figure out why they couldn't find him for that four years. Um, kicking it back to April 6, 1978. Um, at 4.15 p.m., a team of eight OSBI agents, including Mike Wilkerson, which he's, he's a big part of this, Harvey Pratt, he is a Cheyenne Arapaho, um, full blood, Jack Lay, Larry Bowles, Bud Olsey, Carrie Thurman, Don Sharp, and Roger Crisco storm a house in a remote area in south in the southeast corner of Cherokee Nation near Bunch, Oklahoma. The residence belonged to a man named Sam Pigeon, and he was located about 45 miles from Camp uh, Scott. Hart was arrested without incident, and he was transported into the basically the Oklahoma State Penitentiary at McAllister. And so he was caught and. One thing too that and it doesn't really this doesn't really go into kind of what Hart was or what Hart was doing, but Mr. Harvey Pratt, which he's still I think he's still active in in, in this stuff, but you know in the Keeper of the Ashes he he goes into you know he and also too it was someone cry for the children I believe is the other documentary that was the one in the in the early two thousands or the nineties I I can't I can't remember exactly when that was but but uh, he had described you know going out to the different bars and he'd ask people you know he wasn't from there he ain't Cherokee so people would, was kind of not really wanting to talk to him and he had his buddies I think Wilkerson was another guy that would always kind of tag along and you know he he would try to get information well he had found out that kind of he would that they figured out he would hole up in these caves and Harvey Pratt was you know he had to go do some things to make sure he was safe um, and I know someone cry for the children. They had a, a guy named uh, I can't remember. It was Crying Wolf, I believe, was what it was. His name. He was a Cherokee medicine man. Is is kind of how they described him. But you know, he said that they had to go to those means to find him. And see, technically, this is the only time in history that they've used this type of thing to to find this per to find Mr. Hart. So Harvey Pratt went to his, went to some people and you know in the local area and said hey i need this i'd like to find this man and i need to find i need things to help me find him and he went and got and i've heard this you know when it came to Stegenis, is you basically take a bullet or bullets to somebody and they do some things to it and it helps you you know you could shoot it over here and it would still find its way to the intended target well harvey pratt went and did that Another thing that he went and got uh, when he was looking for Mr. Hart was, uh, you know, basically tracker. It was uh, some medicine that made you be around when you, you sometimes when you weren't around. Like it made made Mr. Uh, Mr. Hart feel that Harvey Pratt was on him all the time, and it was that type of medicine, and he'd be there. You know, it was always almost like as if he always showed up when he was around. Like he was always there. And Harvey Pratt tells a story when he was out there with his brother. His brother was a law enforcement guy too, and 
they were out there and they had you know they went out there and found some caves and they saw that there was a it looked like he said it looked like doctored cedar um and by doctored uh, those who in the know who know they know but that he saw that and then he saw fires in four different directions and then he also found the newspaper clipping um of the Tulsa world same one that matched allegedly matched the one that was that they found on the flashlight and so he he said okay this guy he's he's doing some things and that's when he had to go he had to go get some help from somebody um and mr pratt he he ended up and this is like i said he he details a lot of this in the in the documentary and you know when he first started telling people he's like i have we have to do this he got laughed out the room and that's one thing that i get kind of when I hear when I see these non-natives making documentaries of native things, I get kind of a little. It brings my like kind of gets my my blood boiling a little bit, just a little bit. Like it turns the heat up to like two hundred. You know, where everybody's everybody's cooking at about ninety-eight. I'm I see that I'm about to start cooking about two fifty, three hundred. Start getting some bubbles going, you know. <laughs> but a lot of his his colleagues were just like, "Why do you? Why are you doing this? That it ain't. That's not going to work, buddy. Like that's." You're no. That's that's not even. That's make believe. That's that's uh, wizard. You know. That's mad. That don't work. And that, some people called him. You know. Basically thought it was kind of satanic. And he ends up. You know. You know. Going that route. And one night he's out there, and he, he says, "This is this is a story told." He tells, and someone cry for the children. And he's sitting out there with his brother, and it's not even cold outside. It's like man, he's just. It's just pitch black out there. And all of a sudden, this black cat comes up and basically jumps on him, hisses at him, like screams basically, and it's a little like a cat, like a little house cat looking thing, and it runs off into the woods. He looked at his brother, and his brother kind of looked and said, "Yeah, that's probably him." He said, "Why would why would that cat go after just you and not not all of us? Or why would that cat be that way?" And so I thought it was really interesting. I was like, "Man, that's kind of crazy," because you know. We've all seen that, you know. We've, you know, if we if we've been around you know, if certain places, especially when you're out on Cherokee Res, you know, shapeshifters are, you know, they're out there, or Stegini or Skilly or whatever, whatever you call them, they're out there. And and so he knew that he said he knew Hart knew he was on his trail and he was close. So then uh, I think it was Wilkerson ended up get, getting a um, kind of a person in the Native community, the Cherokee community. And he figured out a way to find out who the medicine man who he's staying with, and and uh, he goes to the medicine man's wife and says, "Hey, we're going to indict everybody if we don't figure out a way to get this right, to get him." Well, they end up giving him up, and that's where, as I just mentioned, he you know they they uh, found him at Sam Pigeon's, and Sam Pigeon was in, uh, out in Bunch. Um, my grandma lived out in Bunch for a lot of her life, or part of her life. And Cookson Hills is where she ended up residing as she got older too. So that 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 area, you know, along with the camp, um, you know, that kind of stretches. It's kind of stretches up, and it's kind of a longer type of way. But though that area is very known for those things, and it, and it's things that you can't explain. Um, you know, and and you know, there's been documented history of like Pretty Boy Floyd being out there. Um, uh, Bell, uh, Bella Star out there, all these outlaws who they would hide up there. And, you know, so 
that place, Cooks and Hills, has known for that thing. And, and their Cooks and Hills also back in the seventies uh, was known for uh, basically being the highest amount of full bloods Cherokees in the basically the country. And so, I mean, it's, I don't know if it's that way anymore, but it's the it's the highest concentration of Indians. Uh, you know, the Cher- Cherokee Indians, I'll say, Cherokee Indians in in one setting, but. Um, so he ends up getting caught. He gets caught. Um, and they say how they, uh, how Harvey Pratt describes how he, how they catch him is once they, once the, the wife of the mess man gives up his location, you know, uh, Leroy Hart, he basically tried to escape and they ended up almost shooting him and killing him, but they, you know, they didn't. And Harvey Pratt said he walked up to him and he, he did basically, to basically let him know, hey, this, this is taking his medicine back, taking the medicine, giving him the medicine, and, and so he did something to his shoes, and that's how you you know you know that you you got him, and that's how it's done. But but um, the trial happens, and so I'm going to fast forward to basically the state of Oklahoma versus uh, Gene Leroy. Um, so March nineteenth, nineteen seventy nine, um, the trial uh, basically starts. And it would last basically 11 days. It was not a long trial. Um, but there's no trial transcripts. So everyone kind of, you know, if you've heard of this case, you know that he was acquitted. And so there's no trial trans, uh, transcript because of his being acquitted. Um, but, you know, people have tried to piece together things. And, they've, you know, there's been people inside the, the Oklahoma government that have leaked uh, certain things, um, and so he ended up getting uh, acquitted. And you know, basically, two months later, he ends up dying. He gets sent back to prison um, to finish out his sentence for the previous charge of um, rape, burglary, all that stuff. And he ends up going to to prison. He dies two months later. Two months later. And so that kind of caps the timeline of everything that's happened. And as I've been watching different, I guess you say documentaries or reading articles, there's one thing that's very prevalent through all of it, and that I think everyone can agree, that everyone that I've read can agree, that there were some things that weren't right. They didn't seem right. Um, you know, the DNA that they had captured from the scene originally they said that it was a hundred, basically ninety something percent, or ninety eight point nine, or whatever. Uh, Gene Hart. Well, then, as you, as DNA testing gets better in the in the eighties and then in the nineties, they come to find out that it's one in seven thousand. And so, there's more than seven thousand Indians around there, and that that specific genetic makeup is around in that area. So that doesn't. Basically, they as the DNA comes out, they can't exclude him, but they can't point to him. Then, as the DNA testing gets better and better and better, and so it, I'll fast forward all the way to Keepers of the Ash Ashes. Um, that documentary, um, I believe, I believe they did a good job in some aspects, and I believe that they didn't do a good job in others. Um, I I believe that they did a good job of getting. Um, Mr. Harvey Pratt on there to talk about what he what happened and what you know, what really happened, because I believe he he was the only one that I to me I trust in the law enforcement aspect of this, because I believe he really 
had good intentions to catch him and wasn't trying to, he was just trying to do basic honest police work. And, you know, one thing that, you know, not going to, I guess really, I find very interesting that the, the new Mays County Sheriff is pushing extra hard for this. And he's really doing, you know, he's really going to the end. I think they came up with 30,000, um, I think 30,000 in, in donations to DNA tests. And essentially, they could not still, they still could not exclude or point to heart. This is why, I, this is my first theory that I, this is a theory that I've been kicking around for a while. Um, you know, and this is something that I think that, you know, or not really my theory, but a theory that I've heard is that there was more than one person. Because there was a guy who, his name was Mike Stevens, I believe. He was uh, in the same area and they had seen him at Camp Scott the week before. But they also saw Gene Hart in the area as well. The flashlight that they that they found at the at the scene was was a flashlight that Mike Stevens' friend said that Mike Stevens took from him, stole from him, and they said that he would give it back and he never gave it back and he was gone. He thought, and then you know that kind of connected him. Well, then one of the camp counselors who saw him saw Mike Stevens out there, and they also saw Leroy Hart or uh, Gene Hart out there. So, one thing too that that a lot of the community at the time that when I was watching this documentary that they did interviews with people in the community, they believed that this uh, police force was targeting Gene Hart, and that's why he had such almost heroic type of coverage. Like he was the man that was going against the government, and he was the one that was going to shed light on police co- uh, corruption with him basically not being caught. And to me, I just think that's very interesting um, when you add in that Mike Stevens story. But then also, too, you add in the story from the camp counselor, Carla Wilhite, who found the girls. She was sitting, she had uh, hurt her back. This is, the, this is literally a week before. It was a Wednesday before the Girl, show, the girl, uh, the girl Scout girls showed up. And they were getting it ready. They were putting stuff. And they... They somehow someone leaked these transcript of her saying basically they asked her the question said have you seen prowlers around she said not really prowlers but more of people just driving up and asking where the where they're at and asking for directions and the defense team asked well you know what happened has there has there was anything unusual happened before and she goes well yeah so one night she's like I hurt my back. And I went to the, the the counselor tent to lay down and kind of get you know get it stretched out and kind of keep it straight so she, it'll be better the next day. And she said, I th- it sounded like I heard something rubbing against the tent, like it was scratching its back. And she stepped out and she said, hello, who's there? Anybody there? And nothing said anything back. Well... She up. She kind of could see the dog because there was lights up there because they were having some type of uh, thing, counselor party, in the in the hall, and she saw the dog outside. She goes, "Hey, Sally." The dog's name was Sally, and the and the, the uh, defense team asked, "Well, whose dog is that?" And they said, "Oh, it's the camps. The, the dog is you know, the dog stays here during the summer times." She goes, "Sally, come on, girl." Bring in calls her, and the dog gets about halfway and it starts growling. Starts really looking at something over there behind the tent. Well, 
she never understood why the dog did that, and so she ended up kind of making her way back to the to the party after she kind of stretched her back out and went back. Well, then they asked her. Well, then they kept asking her questions because she had, I guess, she had forgot to mention that basically there was a six-inch tear in the backside of the tent, and that's similar to what happened to those girls in the in the tent before, as there was that same six-inch. Basically, it looked like something was. They were trying to slowly open, like cut the tent open from behind, as she was facing forward, and the dog basically interrupted that. And I thought that was pretty interesting too. Another interesting thing that I thought is when, at the very beginning, when they started looking at suspects, and the rancher Schramm said that he, you know, he had noticed that things were going missing in his barn. Well, come to find out. You know, he started kind of watching, staying up late, and and he started seeing more activity down his road. Like, car lights would come on, and then they'd turn off, and it'd it'd ride slowly up the road, so I guess no one could hear it. He started seeing a lot more activity. Well, then at that same time, a couple of the other counselors um, noticed that basically that doors are being broken open to, or like stuff is being moved around. Uh, I know I mentioned earlier the glasses were being were missing, um, so there was a lot of things, weird things going on. But to me, the thing that was very interesting when it comes to kind of my theory of what I think happened was the fact that evidence was showing up when they were already gone. So this, they brought in that security team, and one thing too that I found interesting that I didn't really get, I was trying to look to see if there's more detail on this. But the security team that was staying there to make sure that everything, and there was, like I said, I don't know how many guys in the security team. I'm assuming probably four at the most or at the least or whatever. But those guys, they were sitting out there one night and they were making rounds and they come back and they said that they, or one, not one night, one middle of the day, and they looked up and they saw a guy that looked like Gene Hart. And they looked and they said, oh my God, that's, that's him, let's go get him. So they go, everyone chases after this shadow looking the shadow basically they come back and the every the houses are broken or those cabins that they had at the the camp was broken into they happened multiple times where they'd see someone off in the distance and they'd say hey you're trespassing you can't be here and they'd go and kind of follow them and that's when they found those shoes the uh, it was uh denise milner's shoes were found soaking wet in a bag that wasn't an osbi bag so you know, there's there's weird different things about this case that that I I kind of watched and I, I could see non-natives. They were kind of almost kind of uh, scratching their their head or their brain, but at the same time they were kind of like, we don't know what's going on. And I think that's one thing that when you talk about you know the unexplained or medicine or shapeshifters in that area is known for those things and there's things that are on that campground that those lands things have been there a lot longer than that camp has been there and you know when you like i've talked about in episode two i believe with the missing disappearances which we'll get back to that too that's another topic for uh, that we're going to do another it's going to be based basically another set of disappearances but it's going to be a different criteria but that's what you see when you those miss those uh disappearances it's almost like those dogs they'll track for a while then all of a sudden it's gone and one thing too that 
that some of the medicine people in that area at the time were saying was that they think that he's that Hart was basically using medicine to distract to spook and distract the cops because some of the cops kind of they were like you know not really that wanting to be out in the middle of the night in the dark in this area that's got these spooky things running around but there's like I said this that case to me I I, I don't the, to me from I mean for me personally um, in my opinion of what happened I mean there's a there's a few other things that 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 uh, occurred um, when he was in prison um, I had heard you know rumored uh, you know in the community you know that you hear is that you know, somebody poisoned him you know somebody got him out of here uh, they said maybe the prison guards because of Weaver um, and OSBI basically trying to get him out of here so they could close the case. Um, another one was uh, Crying Wolf mentioned in someone uh, or was it uh, some or someone crying for the children uh, or someone cry for the children um, is they uh, they had four medicine men show up to the the court proceedings going to try to get him and get him as get uh, Leroy Hart some help. Uh, Gene Hart. I keep saying Leroy Hart. Gene Hart some help to kind of aid him through the the trial. And they performed this ceremony that got them, basically they wanted to know the truth. Was he that guy or was it someone else? And they performed the ceremony um, secretly around the courthouse and they placed um, to this this doctored tobacco, basically, in the four corners of the, of the, uh, the courthouse. And they called upon the ancient one. Is what they called it in the documentary, but yeah, you know, that's yeah, that's Cherokee stuff. But um, they call you know they so they do this this ceremony and 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 uh, he gets off and he you know he's you know basically just going back to prison and crying wolf in the documentary, which kind of spooked me out a little bit. Like I ain't gonna lie, kind of made, made me kind of ooh like oh man that's kind of. But he said everyone is like we are gonna know the truth. He said, and the truth is, is that both sides were standing on the blood of those three girls. And I immediately kind of got like, whoa, oof. So if you look at the aftermath of this entire case over the years, and over the course of that, that year following, you had multiple, multiple, multiple OSBI agents resign. They left. Gone. You had the DA, a couple uh, district attorneys, gone. Resigned, got out of there. You had um, uh, Leroy Hart or uh, Gene Hart passed. He was gone, died. And multiple people that were involved with this investigation, who pop, who who might have done some things that weren't on the up and up and in hundred percent good, um, gone. But Harvey Pratt remained, and Wilkerson remained. Those was the only two guys I believe are. We're still at that time of the documentary. We're still doing anything. Um, the families um, they ended up uh, creating uh, parents of murdered children. Um, they ended up getting uh, constitutional rights for uh, victims of violent crimes. Um, they went on to do great things, and they went on to make sure that, to ensure that these things don't happen. And unfortunately, you know, at the time of a lot of that stuff, there's been things kind of getting worse. But um, but yeah, but 
after doing that ceremony, you could kind of tell that Crying Wolf was like, yeah, you like there was bloodshed. There was the blood standing on the, the blood of both sides. They were standing on those girls. And, and to me, it kind of made me think about the, the footprint that they found, the, the footprint that was different than the rest. Um, I find that very interesting. But if you guys have any opinions or thoughts um, about this topic, like I said, I, I, this is the longest I've talked continuously on one topic. Um, but that's one thing. Like I said, this is a topic that's real prevalent, and it's always going to be prevalent. It'll be 100 years from now, and we will still be the lasting effects uh, in the Cherokee Nation and on Cherokee Res, especially in Locust Grove, um, will always be around. And, you know, this is, a, this is a case that growing up, I never understood the case. I never, you know, understood it. And here in the last probably eight years, five years, I've really started to do a lot of digging and and I learned, you know, I kind of learned some things when it comes to ceremonies and, you know, some medicine when it comes to the knowledge of that stuff and, you know, what what it's about. And But I, I just find it real interesting that this case and, you know, and I said this at the beginning, but I'm going to say this at the end too, you know, my thoughts um, and, and prayers are with those families who have lost their, their, their daughters. Um, I think about, you know, I, I don't know what I would be, you know, hopefully I'd be as strong as them if that, hopefully that never happens to me, but, you know, hopefully I'm, I'm, you know, can, you know, you know, help in any way when it comes to, you know, maybe not getting awareness out there, but just, you know, letting people know that this stuff is still around because this case is not talked about very much. It's only talked about on a, on a non-native perspective. Um, and I thought about it, I said, well, I've, I've, I did a lot of research. I said, man, there's not anyone native talking about this. And what we think about there, what you know, what the perception is here as someone who grew up, you know, 25 miles from that place, you know. Uh, but hopefully, like I said, hopefully that you guys got some type of you know new knowledge, maybe not new knowledge, but new kind of understanding or um, and some type of something from this. And hopefully, like I said this is, this is and I said this in, on Facebook. This episode is is out of respect. I respect everything that that that's, that people did, and I do respect uh, the medicine that was used to, to to find him and to for him to. I respect all that stuff. Uh, I mean, no disrespect by this by this episode. Uh, um, but one thing that I'll say, this is the last thing I'm going to say about this case, is um, if you go watch Keepers of the Keepers uh, Keeper of the Ashes, um, Christian Chenoweth was supposed to be at that camp. And was supposed to be in that tent with those three girls, which is kind of wild if you look at it. She was in four Christmases. Oops, um, she was in four Christmases. Um, she's been in a lot of stuff. She's kind of got that nasally voice. Um, I think she's an opera singer. But Kristen Chenoweth was supposed to be in that tent with that was her grouping with those with those three other girls. And so that kind of is kind of a crazy fact. But I'll say about that documentary, man. After the Probably the third episode. Um, at the end, they can't. They don't have. They they don't have the proof to basically nail him, nail Gene Hart to the wall on that he did it. So they go to about five or seven minute stretch of Kristen Chenoweth singing a song she wrote for the victims. Don't get me wrong. Great premise. Great thought. I understand. But dude, if you want to talk about brutal, it's brutal. <laughs> it's brutal. I was like, 
uh, we were look we were watching this. And we were like, man, what is going on with this? Like, you you basically tell us that you did, you basically have the same findings as you did back in the eighties or nineties. It's inconclusive, and it and it somewhat points to him, but doesn't really. And then you go to a seven minute montage of Kristen Chenoweth on on the stage in Broken Arrow singing to nobody in the crowd. Like there was nobody in the crowd. Like it was just a a blank. Like nobody's there. It was like practice or whatever. But but uh, I just thought it was kind of funny to to add that in there. But but um, but like my last comment, and then we'll get out of here. Um, one thing that people in big cities don't understand um, places like Oklahoma City, Tulsa, uh, Bartlesville, Norman, places like that, where um, and you know places out west, um, they don't understand what and how native spirit spirituality, native medicine uh, affects us natives on a, a daily basis um, and affects us in a way that's different than anything that you've ever dealt with. And that's one thing that I know I noticed about every documentary and everything is that these big city people they have this disconnect with spirit, spirituality, real spirituality, being connected to the earth, being connected to, you know, you know your family, being connected to things that matter. Um and to me with that what the documentary, you know, made me feel was, you know, and made me kind of think about was you know, we are still we're still doing these things. There's people out here that's still, you know, practicing and being traditional. Um, and you know, there's people out here that pr- practice in a different way too. They don't practice the. You know, they're not completely traditional, but they're not completely Western. But one thing I, I noticed, and I'll say this as imparting uh, thought, is there was a quote that was that Stinjati, and I've said this on I think on a live before a TikTok live. You could take the savage out of the man. You can try that, but I will. I this. I will never be you. I will never want to be you. I will take what you give me. I will take what the pain. I will take everything that you send my way, but I will never be what you want me to be. You guys can follow me on TikTok, One Man Band Nine One Eight, Facebook, You Hold a Tiger. I'm available everywhere: Apple, Spotify, YouTube, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio. Um, Go like that, subscribe. I appreciate everybody listening, and I'll catch you on the next one.